I got to clear my mind. They got me all excited in Sunday school talking about Leviticus. It's like a blast from the past, just excited. I'm like, man, maybe we should just preach from Leviticus this morning. Great. Now you all miss that book and that series as much as I do. We, we have, though, this year been walking through uh, the book of Kings as well as the book of Matthew. And, and Kings, as you will recall, is a story of decline and of fading glory. We watch Solomon bring the temple into greatness, and then we see his idolatry spread out and split the kingdom into two. And by the end of the books, we discover that the promises God has made to David, that he would have an heir on the throne forever, have become little more than the flickering of a smoldering wick. Things are dire. Then we come to the book of Matthew, where we are situated this morning, and we find that a light has dawned on the people. Indeed, Matthew seeks to argue that the king has come, that this one who he identifies as Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah King. And so Matthew argues for this from the very first verse of chapter 1. He wants us to know that Jesus has the right pedigree. He comes from David's stock. He fulfills the right prophecies. He moves about geographically in such a way as to demonstrate that he is the Messiah. Indeed, in chapter 3, we see that he has the right endorsements. The Holy Spirit rests on him. And God the Father says, Behold, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It's quite the endorsement and quite the picture as we see our one God and three persons all together in one scene. Then in chapter 4, Matthew holds up for us uh, a sort of paradigm. He wants us to see Jesus as a new Adam who defeats the temptations of the evil one. He also wants us to see him as a new Israel. Like Israel, Jesus has come out of the waters, gone through the wilderness, and now he is at a mountain. And instead of hearing the words of God, he speaks the words of God. In this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls all who are listening to himself and to holiness. And at the conclusion of the sermon, in chapter 7, all of the people say he teaches as one with authority, not as one of the scribes, that they are impressed by Jesus' power. Indeed, he speaks the very words of God. His power continues to be on display in chapter 8 as he heals. This is what we looked at last week. He cleanses a leper with a touch. He heals a centurion's son who is very far away with, from him with a word. He takes a fever from Peter's mother-in-law. He's casting out demons, and Matthew puts the finger on Jesus. He says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, referring to Isaiah 53. He, he's talking about Jesus. He's identifying Jesus as the suffering servant. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases, so that when Jesus is healing, he is giving a preview of the kingdom that is to come. 
the future eschatological kingdom of God where all things are made well and there is no sickness, there is no sin, there is no disease. But that's breaking into the right now. The kingdom of God, the, the not yet kingdom of God, is already showing up everywhere that Jesus goes. And it is incredible. People are following him. The crowds are gathering about him as if they were his shadow. Jesus, though, flees popularity. He goes away from crowds. Over and over again, we see it. We, we want to look at him from a contemporary perspective and say, Jesus, don't you know this isn't great for your Instagram page? Like, if you want to really be an influencer, Jesus, you need to post, you need to get likes, you need to fold in with the crowds. Jesus, though, is not interested in building his brand. He doesn't seek to just gather to himself casual followers or shallow disciples. No, he wants people that are really committed. If, if someone's going to be known as his disciple, they will have to be known as someone who worships him as king. And so we come to Matthew chapter 8, and verses 18 through 22, and we are surprised at Jesus. We have become so casual in our approach to Christianity that, that many of us, perhaps, believe that becoming a Christian and following Jesus is easy as pie. Simple as praying a prayer and moving on. In fact, we've sentimentalized Jesus so that he would never say anything that would be hard or offensive. And yet, when we come to passages like the one before us today, we find a different picture of Jesus. He is not docile. Indeed, he has a steel spine and a sharp tongue. Yes, of course, he is gentle and lowly at heart. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hallelujah. But some of us so obscure who Jesus is that we only want to take part of him. We only want the Jesus who is gentle and lowly. And we start to conceive of him in a way that's inaccurate, in a way that, that would make him subject to our feelings. What do I mean? That, that he would never do anything to offend us or to challenge us. That he would be unconditionally affirming. But that's not who he is. Yes, he is the Lamb of God, but his gentleness is not weakness. It's strong. He's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. When we come to a text like we do this morning, we, we find that he has his claws out and that he intends to dig them into us that he might heal us and make us well. One thinks of uh, Mr. Beaver's response to Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's been quoted many times, but I still love it. 
She asks of Aslan the lion. He says to Mr. Beaver, he's safe, isn't he? Mr. Beaver, almost aghast, says, safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Jesus, yes, he is a safe place for sinners. But he's not a safe person to be around with your sin. He, he will challenge and change you. And so we want to make sure we see Jesus in his fullness who, who invites weak and weary sinners to come to, the, to him and he wants to forgive them. He invites, if you're a non-Christian here, Jesus Christ will welcome you with open arms if you will turn from your sin and come to him. But he is also, he's not tame. He's not a tame lion, is what Lewis always says. He has a full personality. And today we, we come and we see, we see him speak sharp words. Our main idea is this. True discipleship has a price and a priority. True discipleship has a price and a priority. And primarily, I know I have three points there. That's maybe just because we're Baptists. But uh, primarily, we're going to spend our time uh, looking at the price of discipleship and the priority of discipleship through these two, uh, air quote, disciples that come to Jesus. And I have named them. Mr. Hasty and Mr. Wrong Order. Maybe a little on the nose, but will hopefully help you take hold of what I believe Matthew intends to communicate to us this morning. Let's pray and we'll get into the text. Heavenly Father, we thank you that indeed you are good. We thank you for sending Jesus to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we should have died and to rise from the dead so that all who trust in him can have peace with you, can be united to him by the power of your Holy Spirit. Indeed, we can be called your sons. We thank you that to know Jesus is to know all of you, God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Father, we pray that we would get to know you more this morning. We thank you that you are incredible. You are both good and severe. You are full of wrath and full of love. Indeed, you are holy. You are who you are. You are God, and there is no other, there is no one like you, and so we give you praise. Help us to see you this morning. Help us to hear your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 18, Matthew 8. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. It's the other side of the sea of Galilee. So Jesus sees the crowd coming to him and he says, all right, this is, you know, I like to think he's an introvert like me, a little too much. But he says, we're, we're going to go to the other side. And what we have before us is somewhat of a lived parable. Because there's going to be a 
sifting of the wheat and the tares. A separation is going to happen. Those who were happy to hear Jesus speak, and no more, will stay where they are. Oh, but those disciples who actually want to follow Jesus, to hear his words and do them as he prescribed at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, those who would want to build their house on the rock, they'll follow the rock out to sea. They'll go across. Raises an interesting question for us to meditate on. Would we be willing to go out of the crowds with Jesus? One of the interesting things in the New Testament and throughout church history is how often Jesus and his followers are in the minority. That's on the other side of the majority. How often he calls his people out of the majority and into a small group of people. Makes me think of us today where the church is at. Sometimes we're leveled with the charge of being on the wrong side of history. When we decide that we are going to follow Jesus and obey his word. So I ask are you willing to follow Jesus out of popular opinion? in accordance with the truth. Because it does mean you will be on the wrong side of history. But Jesus and his followers have always been there. Jesus started on the wrong side of Rome, and he was on the wrong side of a Roman cross. But before you make your decision about whether you would follow him there, you need to remember that today Rome is dead and the tomb is empty. Jesus reigns. And the crowds and popularity, things of the past that matter not in light of eternity. Would you be willing to hear the words of Jesus and not just let them fall on your ears powerlessly? Will you hear them and be changed by them? Hear them and and do them? Will you follow Jesus, the rock, out to sea? Jesus prepares to take his ministry onto a boat. And we have two men two would-be disciples that come to him in succession. We've called the first Mr. Hasty. Mr. Hasty comes to Jesus in verse 19. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. If you are a note-taker, somebody that writes in your Bible, uh, wherever might be a good word to circle. I'm going to talk a lot here, and I might get off the beaten path, but I do think if there's just one main idea of this, it's, is Jesus going to ask this guy, I'm getting ahead of him, he, he's going to ask him, 
are you really willing to go wherever I go? That's the big question. Will you go wherever Jesus goes? So teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And this is interesting from the jump because it's a scribe. And scribes would have been really great Bible teachers, probably popular in the community as righteous people. But if you read your New Testament, uh, you know that scribes are usually in league with Pharisees, and scribes and Pharisees don't usually love Jesus. Uh, And Jesus is not typically very kind to them. In Matthew 23, he pronounces woes upon the Pharisees. Uh, And then remember how the Sermon on the Mount started in chapter 5. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so it is surprising that this Bible teacher, this scribe, comes so hastily to Jesus. I will go wherever you go. And if we were there, I imagine we would have probably reacted, as I'm guessing, speculating, some of these disciples did. This is great. A legitimate, credentialed Bible teacher. I mean, until this point, we've been a bunch of fishermen. This is going to be fantastic. It's going to add some legitimacy to our merry band of fishermen. We expect Jesus, even, to maybe greet this guy like he did the centurion. Remember the centurion comes, he has faith, and he says, oh, I haven't found such faith in all of Israel. What great faith. Jesus is amazed. And part of us goes, maybe Jesus can be, you ascribe, it was so unexpected. What great faith. Welcome to the team. This isn't how Jesus responds, though. Indeed, Jesus surprises us. Verse 20, and Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, Jesus is using some hyperbole here. Um, He may have had his own home, though it's more likely that he stayed in the homes of his disciples. But what he's referring to here is the nature of his ministry. He's going to be constantly on the move, leaving comfort and home behind. And what he's saying to this Bible teacher, our Mr. Hasty, is, is, friend, you need to count the cost before you follow me. You've, you've come, you seem willing, you've, you've made a great announcement with your lips, but you haven't really considered what this is going to cost you. Similar to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build a tower and wasn't able to finish. 
or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Love how Jesus doesn't soften things or caveat. Jesus is not telling us to harbor rage and hatred for our fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. So some of you that may have been rejoicing over those old grudges you had, sorry, Jesus does not approve. He he intends for us to see those relationships as far less, our love as far cooler for those relationships than our love for him. We are to love Jesus with such a supremacy that our love for others actually appears as hate. It's a word picture he's giving to us. It's memorable. He's not calling us to hate our family. He's he's not calling us to break the fifth commandment. It's problematic for Jesus. And we know know that because of things that I've just said, but also uh, in Matthew 15, he comes to the Pharisees, and one of the things he rebukes them for is their failure to care for their parents under the pretense of religion. And then later on, of course, Paul writes that the one who does not care for his own family is worse than an unbeliever. Jesus isn't calling us to hate our family. He's not calling, I'm sorry, to harbor feelings of hatred for our family. And he's not actually calling us to have zero possessions. In 1433, right? Therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. If that, if that, if we just take that as it is, very woodenly, we don't think about what Jesus means, then we're all in trouble here. We all came with uh, clothes on our backs, right? Probably from a home. Vehicles, most of us. So what, what does Jesus mean? He means that he must be supreme in our lives. That the cost of following him is everything else in our lives. That to follow Jesus means entrusting ourselves and our families and all of our resources to him. The cost of following Jesus is trusting him with your life, with the whole section about the cross. Whoever does not bear his own cross cannot be my disciple. Be ready to die to yourself that you might live to Christ. And so while salvation is free, grace is free, it also costs your life. Because you have to entrust your whole life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus' response reminds me of the rich young ruler. Uh, Later on, Matthew 19, you guys remember rich? He's young and he's a ruler. He's probably handsome too, right? It's hard to be rich and young and a ruler and not be handsome. And so he's just got everything going for him in the world. And remember, he comes to Jesus and he says, how can I inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him, well, you know, keep these commands. And he says, I've kept these from my youth. 
And then Jesus says, one thing you lack, Matthew 19, 21. If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful because he had many great possessions. Here, Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler, we hear his response to this wonderful announcement from the mouth of Mr. Hasty. And when Jesus says, not so fast, my friend, slow down, count the cost, I think some of us want to go, wait, Jesus, what are you doing? We need more Christians. This man's coming to you. He's making a a great confession. Why are you putting up roadblocks? Why are you standing in his way? Don't you see he wants to follow you? Why are you making it so hard? Maybe the contemporary version would be, why don't we just have that person join the church? Didn't you hear their profession? Like what Matthew Henry said here. There are many resolutions for religion produced by some sudden pains of conviction and taken up without due consideration that prove abortive and come to nothing. Soon ripe, soon rotten. What does he mean? He means that it is possible for people like Mr. Hasty to have some sort of experience that leads them to say something right about Jesus when they haven't, in fact, counted the cost of following Jesus, when they haven't, in fact, been converted by the Spirit of Jesus. This is a good word to us. Be cautious and careful about who we affirm as a disciple of Jesus. We do not want to give dead people the impression that they are alive. We want to make sure that those who would follow Christ would be willing to pay the cost of discipleship. We want to make sure that we, if we are following Christ, follow him truly and will not be have our faith choked out by the riches and worries of the world. I wonder, friend, if you're listening, are you the kind of person who hears the word of Christ like rocky soil in that parable of the soils? Quickly green, quickly gone, quickly ripe, soon rotten. Or are you good soil? bearing fruit. Hear the word of Christ. Believe it. Bear fruit. Pay the cost. Our goal in evangelism and sharing Christ with others is not to psychologically manipulate others into making a vapid profession of faith. 
if the goal of evangelism were merely to manipulate those that we are talking with into making empty professions of faith and praying faithless sinners' prayers, then Jesus was a terrible evangelist. The goal in evangelism is to share the gospel and pray that the Spirit of God would do the work of God and create life. Brothers and sisters, conversion is the work of God. We cannot cause others to be born again any more than we could cause ourselves to be born the first time. Evangelism is the effort to speak God's life-creating word to others with the hope that he will create a love for Christ and life in them. We share the gospel hoping that the supremacy of Christ will show up for them. That they will see who God is. They will see that the Father has given his only begotten Son on the cross to die for their sins. So that when they repent and trust in him, they might be united to him by the Holy Spirit. That they might have life. We pray when we share God's word with others that he would create love there, a love for himself that swallows up and sweeps away all other loves by comparison. Faith comes from hearing, not from our clever machinations and manipulations. I want to endeavor to make sure Christ is heard. And so we don't think of evangelism in terms of a one-time only, one-shot, you know, sniper affair. Got to get them to a decision or they're going to be done. We, we think of it like Jesus. The conversation we can have patiently. We want them to count the cost. Yes, Jesus died for you. I want you to believe that. If you believe that, you will obey him. Are you ready to obey him? Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. But the Son of Man is nowhere to lay his head. I think so often in the church's rush to create converts caused great unhealth in the church as we have gathered to ourselves those who would claim Jesus' name but be unconverted. It's hard for a church to stay healthy when we fill it with non-Christians. There's a great danger we need to be aware of. J.C. Ryle said it this way, Nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession and talk fluently of experience. Jesus meets Mr. Hasty, tells him to slow down, to count costs. He says, Foxes have holes, birds have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Jesus says, you'll go wherever? Really? Will you? We've got a whole lot of camping ahead of us. Which if you're like me, that's a real deterrent. That's a real drawback. Like, eh, maybe not. Jesus says, I cannot guarantee your safety if you follow me. I cannot guarantee your comfortable life. You have to leave home and trust me. In fact, Jesus promises his disciples difficulties and persecutions. Being a follower of Jesus is a great adventure, but it is uncomfortable, difficult, and costly business. when some of us hear me and hear Jesus speak about following him in this way, we, we are made uncomfortable because naturally we like safety. We like comfort. Of course he isn't safe. I think, you know, as all things, it always comes back to Lord of the Rings. Uh, but I think of Gandalf coming in, in The Hobbit, in that first book, he comes and he's trying to get one of the hobbits to go on adventure with him. He's recruiting adventurers and uh, he's talking to Bilbo. He's like, I have not been warmly received. And Bilbo famously says this to him. We are plain, quiet folk and have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things make you late for dinner. I can't think what anybody sees in them. I'm going to be honest. Like that's, that's where my heart wants to go. I like to be comfortable. I don't like to be late to dinner. But what Jesus is saying here, when you follow me onto an adventure, well, you're going to be late for dinner sometime, Mr. Hasty. You're going to have to leave your comfortable home. Indeed, there will be some nastiness down the line. A servant is not above his master. He wants Mr. Hasty to count the cost because true discipleship has a price. Before we move on to Mr. Wrong Order, I want to bring your attention to this phrase just shortly, uh, the son of man in verse 20. You guys see it there? Uh, son of man has about, I mean, it's probably the most written on thing in all of scripture, most written on phrase. People have all kinds of hot takes. At the end of the day, it's pretty simple. Uh, Jesus, this is Jesus' favorite term to use of himself, his favorite self-designation. I think in Matthew, I'm going to get the number wrong. In Matthew, maybe it's like 81 times he says it. He says it a lot through the Gospels, either way. Uh, he takes this up and he applies it to himself. But it very clearly means different things throughout Scripture. And I, I believe, and most everyone's agreed on this, that that ambiguity is part of the reason why. Now, let me show you. Uh, we read Psalm 8. It's one of our Scripture readings this morning. And in Psalm 8, 4, we have this. What is man that you are mindful of him? and the son of man that you care for him. One of the reasons 
that one of the things that son of man can mean is simply somebody who is born of man and dies. On the other hand, as we saw in our other scripture reading, the son of man can be loaded with messianic fright. Remember Daniel 7? I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus picks this up. We can see son of man uh, on the one hand refers to just people who die. And on the other hand, it can refer to this highly exalted messianic figure. And Jesus says, son of man, that's me. It's really brilliant because in it, we can see Jesus' real humanity. The man, you and I. And it holds out for us his divine mission. He's come to reconcile God and man. To be our great king. As he ushers in his everlasting kingdom. It does hit a little bit different too when you think Jesus is the son of man. He is the son of God. Infinitely rich. And yet, he has nowhere to lay his head. No palace no place. Well, why? Think of 2 Corinthians 8. Jesus became poor so that we, who are spiritually poor, might become rich. Jesus became poor. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, to bring glory to the Father, and to bring his Holy Spirit to us so that we might be brought into the family of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew 5, 2, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isn't it incredible that Jesus became poor so that if we will renounce all we have and trust all that we are to him, we can be made new. We can be brought from death to life. We can be promised eternal life. We can be promised a future resurrection. We can be promised, this is the greatest gift of all, adoption into God's family. Because of the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. When we who put our trust in Christ believe, when we lay down our heads at night on our pillows, we can know that we are safe in God. It is incredible. If you are a non-Christian, I want you to know you can have life. Turn from your sin. Come poor in spirit. 
trust the Son of Man who became poor so that you might become infinitely rich. This brings us to Mr. Wrong Order. Mr. Hasty was in a hurry to declare he would like to follow Jesus, and Mr. Wrong Order is in a hurry to declare that he does not want to follow Jesus. He wants Jesus' approval, absolutely, but he doesn't want to pay the cost. Look with me at verse 21. Another of the disciples, again, put this in air quotes, the word disciple develops throughout the New Testament, and at this point, it just means people that are following Jesus, sort of crowded around him. Later on, it takes on that weight of being somebody who's truly converted and, you know, the 12 disciples sort of sense. Here, you know, I actually have a little, little air quotes in my Bible, right? One of the disciples of Jesus, right? So another guy comes, Mr. Wrong Order, and he says to him, Lord, and notice he addresses Jesus as Lord, whereas the scribe addressed Jesus as teacher. Some folks draw a huge amount of significance from that. I don't I just think this is their normal way. Lord is a term of respect here. Teacher was a term of respect there. The scribe would have used it because <laughs> scribes used to choose their own teachers, their own rabbis, and so he's saying, I'm with you, Jesus. You get to be my teacher. It's your lucky day, right? And Jesus is saying, actually, I have nowhere to lay my head. So back to Mr. Wrong Order. Uh, wrong, <laughs> wrong Order says, Lord, let me first, so if you were keeping track earlier, I said, hey, I might get lost, just circle the word wherever in the first part, right? In the second part, if you're going to circle one word, circle the word first. Circle the word first. Because that's the second big question of this section. There's two big questions. Will you really go wherever Jesus goes? Do whatever he calls you to do. And will you put Jesus first? He says, Lord, let me first Go and bury my father. This sounds like a legitimate request, doesn't it? And of course, of course Jesus is going to say, yeah, I totally get that. Bury your father and then come and follow me. After all, like, that's just the kind thing to do. We think that especially in light of 1 Kings chapter 19, for those of you who thought you might have escaped a King's reference this morning, you have not. 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah comes and he throws his mantle on Elisha. The great prophet is picking a disciple. And Elisha says to Elijah, as he runs up behind him, hey, can I first go kiss my mother and father? Goodbye. And Elijah, a bit of a curmudgeon and sort of a crotchety old man, uh, says, well, fine, no, fine, go ahead. So Elisha goes home. He had been plowing with this oxen yoke. He kills his career by killing these oxen. He shares this great feast with everyone else. He kisses his mom and dad goodbye. And then he joins the great prophet as his disciple. And so we hear this more intense request. He doesn't want to just kiss mom and dad goodbye. He wants to bury his father. And we think, of 
course, Jesus is going to say, go to do the funeral stuff, bury him, that's fine. That's what Jesus is going to say, right? Right? Jesus surprises us again. <laughs> he says to him, follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, people try to smooth this out by speculating. Well, you know, sometimes uh, dead doesn't mean dead. And all intents and purposes, usually traditionally, they would bury somebody inside of the first 24 hours. And so if this guy's dad is dead, I don't know if he's hanging out listening to Jesus and then coming to even make this request, right? So I, I get that. Others say, well, potentially his father is in old age, right? And so he's saying, well, let me hang out with dad at the end of his life here for these last few years, and then, then we'll bury him, and then, then I'll come and follow you. And there's like six other ones too. I'm not going to walk you through all of them. Here's my point. I'm not going to make a decision on that because I think Jesus' language is deliberately sharp and pointed. He's saying, let the dead bury their dead. You follow me decisively. Your old life, if you have come alive, if you have believed my word, if I'm your Lord, if I'm your Savior, everything else takes a back seat. Even the most intimate relationships you have, even the most sacred duty you could possibly conceive of, it is as nothing when compared with following me. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead you if you've come to life follow me this is what jesus calls us to do to love him supremely above all other loves in our lives again jesus is not anti-family he loves the family. Well, it's God's big idea. Be fruitful and multiply. That's cultural mandate. Loves the family. In fact, he expects us to fulfill the great commission in our families as we train our children to believe the gospel and to become true disciples. Jesus is, is not eliminating family ties. He is exalting himself. Family ties are not eliminated, but gloriously superseded when we come to Christ. Mr. Wrong Order has his priorities in the wrong order. I know, a little on the nose, but that's the idea. When we come to Christ, we have to reorganize our hierarchy of loves. With Jesus sitting high atop our affections upon the throne of our lives, ruling everything. So when this man says, first, let me do this other thing, because I don't have to follow you right now. I want your approval, but I don't actually want to follow you right now. Jesus says, no, 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 I am first. Follow me. That's what we're supposed to take away. 
the priority of Christ, regardless of if this man's father was dead or alive. We are to learn that if we are spiritually alive, our priority is in following Jesus. And this sounds, I think it's very intense, and it should be. Discipleship is costly. But I actually think many of us just sort of shrug this off. Yes, Jesus, I love him above all else, and I'm supposed to love my family also. On with my life. I was thinking about this this morning. But yeah, I believe that. And I'm not in a position, like some have been, where they actually have to leave their families. Like, to follow Christ in some families and in some countries is to leave your family. Leave your old life. I mean, and I have trouble, I have trouble sometimes just, you know, loving Jesus above football. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? I was thinking about that, I was like, you know, where do I go for encouragement or comfort or, you know, what do I delight in just sort of naturally? I was ashamed how often my heart goes other places. How quick I am to pick anything and everything else up but my Bible. And yet there are people who have paid a far higher cost than just making sure Jesus is, is first in their affections as it relates to their entertainment or as it, as it relates to how they schedule out their days. We're all called to do this, but not all of us have to do it practically. There are those who have had their lives torn apart. Remember Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword and set mother against father, and father against son and mother against daughter. And that happens as men and women are converted and their parents want nothing to do with them. Their grandparents want nothing to do Their families want nothing to do with them. Discipleship is costly. And yet sometimes we just reduce it a Mr. Hasty-like announcement. Sometimes we just reduce it as if Jesus is just another item to throw somewhere, wherever you want, in the order of things that are important in your life. Discipleship is hard. I always remember when I think of people actually having to leave family as they follow Jesus very practically, I always think of Rosaria Butterfield's uh, book. It's really great. I've encouraged you to pick it up before. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She's a former English professor, brilliant writer, incredible story. But this is what she writes of her conversion. How do I tell you about my conversion to Christianity without making it sound like both an alien abduction and a train wreck. Truth be told, it felt like a little of both. This was my conversion in a nutshell. I lost everything but the dog. Conversion put me in a complicated and comprehensive chaos. I sometimes wonder when I hear other Christians pray for the salvation of the lost, 
if they realized that this comprehensive chaos is the desired end of such prayers. Often people ask me to describe the the lessons I learned from this experience. I can't. It was too traumatic. Sometimes in crisis, we don't really learn lessons. Sometimes the result is simpler and more profound. Sometimes our character is simply transformed. Jesus radically changes his disciples. He reorders their loves and their very lives. Think back to that Bilbo conversation with Gandalf. Of course you're thinking. In that conversation, Gandalf is encouraging him to come on an adventure. And he says, you'll have some, some stories to tell And Bilbo says, so we're coming back then. And Gandalf says, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. We are called onto a great adventure of discipleship. And it won't leave us the same. It won't leave us the same at all. Jesus, when he calls someone to himself, changes them. Have we been changed? Have our loves been reordered? Is Jesus Christ supreme in your life? Quick word of comfort, and then we'll conclude. This is specifically uh, towards those who, like Rosaria, left loved ones follow Jesus. Mark chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers sisters and mothers and children and lands along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life this is quite the promise what is jesus saying he's saying the things that have cost you to be my disciple will be given to you in my family in my church, you will receive spiritual mothers, spiritual fathers, spiritual children. You'll share one another's homes. You'll share one another's lands now as you are being persecuted. And in the age to come, you will receive eternal life. It is a wonderful promise that holds up for us just how glorious the church is supposed to be. Just how acutely the church is to display the glory of God. Mr. Wrong Order has his loves in the wrong order. 
Mr. Hasty comes with a good profession, yet neither have counted the costs of true discipleship. Really interesting, Matthew doesn't tell us what either man does in response to Jesus. I think this is intentional. I think it's because he is inviting us to ask ourselves what we will do in response to Jesus. Will you go wherever he goes? Will you put Jesus first? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to go to lay his head. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your love and your mercy to us. We thank you that yet while we were still sinners, you sent Christ to die for us so that we might live. Pray that by your Spirit we would die to sin and self and live to righteousness. We ask that we would work out the salvation that you have worked in us. That you would give us a willingness to submit our whole lives to the Lord Jesus. That we would be willing to go wherever he goes. That we would be willing to love him supremely above all else. Father, we pray that when we consider counting the costs of following Christ, that we would understand it to be a really small price to pay considering the infinite return on our investment. Father, relationship with you, knowing Jesus as king, is far greater than if we had gotten Amazon at $18 a share. You are so good to us. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name.